Would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3? We'll be looking at verses 7 to 19 this morning as we talk about guarding our heart. Let me read this for us. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger that they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not, were they not all those Moses had led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for the warnings it gives, and for the encouragement that it brings. And I pray that we would take to heart what you are saying here today, and that we would examine our own heart to see if we are in the faith. Father, you know the condition of our heart, and I pray that as we walk through this text this morning, that if there is anything that is hindering our relationship with you today, that we would deal with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Many years ago, a pastor I know was traveling across Wisconsin to speak at a conference in Minneapolis. Uh, he had had a late night on a Friday. He was scheduled to speak on Saturday morning, and so he was kind of driving through the night from the Chicago area, coming across, and, and he was tired, you know, and he's late. He had intended to get an earlier start and get here sooner so they could get a good night's sleep, but that just wasn't happening. And so it's late at night. He's kind of, you know, fighting that battle as he's coming across, trying to stay alert, you know, and he's praying. And then uh, he gets to around Menominee, and here he is. He's just going too fast. And when you know, state trooper pulls him over. And uh, John, his name was, you know, he's like, he's waiting for the officer to come up. The officer comes up, wants to see driver's license, all of those things. And John goes, Boy, I just want to tell you that you are an answer to prayer. <laughs> and uh, the officer says, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I'm going to this conference, and I was tired, and I was praying, Lord, would you help me to stay awake and stay alert? And when I saw your lights behind me in the window, I, I said, I could drive all the way to the cities right now, you know, and, and the officer smiled and chuckled, and he actually knew the church and the conference that he was going to. And so he just gave him a warning, and he said, I tell you what, I'm going to drive behind you a little ways, make sure you're doing okay, and then let you go, just keep it under the speed limit. Well, that was grace. That was grace. But it came with a warning, a warning 
to keep it under the speed limit. And when you think about warnings that are given, warnings are intended to change behavior. I mean, that's why God gives warnings as well. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, uh, this is the second warning in the book of Hebrews. It is a warning against unbelief. And it's important for us to remember or to think about that this warning is not given to those outside the church. It's a warning that's written to the church. It's a warning that's written to you and me. And that is because in any congregation, there may be people whose outward appearance does not match their heart. They may profess to be a Christian. They may even at times look like they're a Christian, you know, by certain things they do or activities that they join in. But they have never surrendered their heart to Jesus and they've never been born again. To emphasize that point, the author of Hebrews chose a passage that was familiar to every one of his hearers. He quotes from Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. What's significant about this passage is that this particular psalm was read as a call to worship on every Sabbath evening in every Jewish synagogue. It was part of their order of worship, if you will. This was their call to worship. When they would meet on a Friday night in their synagogues, they would hear this psalm read. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. It was taken from Israel's experience in the wilderness, and it illustrates how easy it is to fall away from God or to see Him work and to take that for granted and never have your heart united to Him in faith. He writes to warn and encourage us to stay faithful to Jesus. As we walk through this text, there are four points I'd like to make. Number one, be wise. The whole reason that this passage is given is so that we might learn from their example and not do what they did. I mean, they saw God working, they hardened their heart. Didn't make any difference in their life or their attitude, their actions. And what the writer of Scripture is saying so clearly here is that now is the time to obey. It's not tomorrow. It's not the next day or the day after that or the day after that where we can just kind of keep putting it off. Now is the time to obey. And notice how he introduces this quote from the Psalms. He says, So as the Holy Spirit says... And that's interesting because what he's doing there is, I mean, this is where we get our view of Scripture, that all of Scripture is God's Word. It comes from Him. And he knows that there was a psalmist who wrote this, but for the writer of Hebrews, what the psalmist says or what the person God used to write the Scripture says is exactly what God says. This is his book. This is his warning. And it was true and applicable at the time the psalmist wrote. It was true a thousand years later when the writer of Hebrews quotes it as a message to his people. And it's true 2,000 years later after that for us to hear this word from God that is a warning. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. 
In the placement of the words that are used here, that word today is emphatic. It's emphasizing that point. Today is the day to obey. And clearly, when you look back in history in the Old Testament, the children of Israel didn't get it. Out of all the people who have lived on the face of the earth, no generation saw God do more miracles over a longer period of time than they did. I mean, the only maybe exception or argument you can make would be in the ministry of Jesus. There were more miracles, but they were done over a three-year period of time that the apostles witnessed and saw Jesus working there. Whereas for the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, they saw God work. And think about all the miracles that they witnessed. After 430 years in captivity, now comes the time when God is going to set them free. They saw the ten plagues that God sent upon the Egyptians, and they saw the difference that God made where those plagues fell upon the Egyptians, but in the land of Goshen they were spared. They saw God's grace in the Passover when every firstborn male died, except those whose homes had had the blood of a lamb across the doorpost as a covering. They saw the parting of the Red Sea as they were making their way out and they came to this obstacle and God separated the waters so that they could dry, walk through on dry land. And then they saw the destruction of Pharaoh's army when he tried to follow them. They saw God lead them with the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. I mean, that alone was an amazing testimony of God's presence there, that when that pillar moved, they moved. When it stayed, they stayed. However long it camped, they camped. They were to follow God every day. They ate God's bread that fell from heaven, the manna. They drank water from the rock. They ate quail in abundance when God sent them quail. They heard God's voice on the mountain. They saw his glory fill the tabernacle. I mean, outstanding miracles. And I think about that because sometimes people say, you know, well, if I just saw God work or I just saw God do this one miracle, well, then I'd believe. Well, here's an example in history of a group that saw many miracles and still did not believe. And the clearest example of their disobedience came at Kadesh Barnea, Kadesh Barnea when they stood on the edge of the promised land. And it wasn't long after they had gone into the wilderness and God had given them the Ten Commandments, they heard His law, instructions, and all of that, and God brought them to this point where they could have entered the Promised Land. Twelve spies were sent out, and they went through the land, and they gathered information, and they brought back produce, and they saw that this land was indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. It was everything that God said that it would be. And yet when they came back, ten of those spies said, we can't go in because there are giants in the land and they live in walled cities and we won't be able to take it. We need to turn back. There were only two, Joshua and Caleb, who said that we can do it by God's power and he will bring us into that land. Because of their unbelief, they would not be allowed to enter the promised land. And later when they tried to do it on their own, when they realized their sin and they went up, God was not with them and they were routed by their enemies and many died. They had missed their opportunity. Now 
is the time to obey. Today, if you hear his voice, this is the time to respond. You know, it's been a little over a week since the terrorist attack in Paris that killed 129 people. And the thing about that attack is that it could have occurred anywhere. Brussels is in a lockdown mode today because of their fears of another terrorist attack happening. The United Kingdom, Britain, London, you know, places like that. Other parts of Germany are all on high alert and even here in the United States, we have heightened security. Because we don't know exactly when or where something may happen. You know, and in that same way, we do not know the day when we are going to die. We don't know the day when we will pass from this life. I think about meeting with Joe this last week and talking to him and how he longed to be free of his cancer, how he longed to overcome this battle with pain. It wasn't the way that he would have chosen. He would have liked to have remained here for his family. But Joe would say to me that day when I met with him, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. You know, that's the confidence that we as believers have in Jesus Christ, that if we die, we are going to be with him. But I wonder in that terrorist attack how many of those individuals are ready to die. How many had heard the gospel? How many had placed their faith in Jesus Christ? The Scripture urges us to make the most of every opportunity because we don't know how much time we really have. Be wise. Secondly, be tender-hearted. We see that in verse 12 when he exhorts us, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. How does a heart grow cold and hard? Well, it is through things like sin and disobedience. It's through neglect or indifference where people begin to think about their spiritual life as though it's not important. Not really that important for me to read my Bible or go to church or do those things I once did and they drift away. It, it grows cold and hard through bitterness or unforgiveness, holding on to grudges, holding on to hurts and hardening our hearts against God and others. It becomes cold and hard through idolatry. It could be pride or lust or envy or greed. It is putting something else ahead of God in our life, and our heart grows cold as a result. And ten times in the wilderness, the Israelites grumbled and complained against God. It wasn't just a one-time event. It was the pattern of their life that when something happened they didn't like, they were mad at God. And they blamed him for all of the different things that were going on in their life. Philip Hughes commented on this passage, and I like this quote. He said, they set themselves up as judges over God, and they refused to put their trust in him unless God did what they demanded. Now take a look at that again and think about that. They set themselves up as judges over God as though they knew better what should happen or how it should be done, and they refused to put their trust in him unless God did what they demanded. That's convicting. I mean, do we ever do that? Do we do that when things don't go the way 
that we think they should. And we question God, or we doubt God, or we get mad at God because my plan's been thwarted because God is doing something different. Jack Welsh, the former corporate chief at General Electric, grew up as a devoted Irish Catholic. He was an altar boy, later as an adult. Uh, He was faithful in his attendance, going to the Mass. He'd sometimes drive more than an hour to get to the Mass. But he wrote in his book that his commitment to faith changed when his mother died of a heart attack when he was a young man. And in his book, straight from the gut, he writes, I felt cheated, angry, and mad at God for taking my mother away. He said he still claimed to believe in God, but he lost his heart for religion and he no longer attends church. His mother died. The way he responded to that was to get mad at God and stop going to church. You know, I understand the pain and hurt when we lose someone we love. But how we handle that is very important. Let me share another story that I think is a much better way to handle that. William White writes about a man named Hans who's a European seminary professor. And he lost his wife who died in a battle with cancer. Hans was so overcome with sorrow that he lost his appetite and he didn't want to leave his house. They had been married for many years And he just grieved that loss. And out of concern, the seminary president, along with three other professors, paid Hans a visit. The grieving professor confessed that he was struggling with his feelings and with doubt. And he said, I'm no longer able to pray to God. In fact, I'm not certain I believe in God anymore. And after a moment of silence, the seminary president said, then we will believe for you. And we will pray for you. Well, what happened was that these three men continued to come and they met daily with him for prayer, asking God to restore the gift of faith to their friend. And some months later, as the four friends gathered for prayer that day, Hans said to them, he smiled and he said, it is no longer necessary for you to pray for me. Today, I would like you to pray with me. Now, what did those individuals do? They recognized that here was a man who was hurting in his grief. They came alongside of him as friends. They loved him. They didn't judge him. They loved him. They prayed for him, and they lifted him up before God's throne. And his faith was renewed. Faith is trusting God even when we don't understand what He may be doing. And we trust Him based on His character and His love. That He is an all-wise God who knows what He is doing. And in the life of a believer, all things work together for good to those who know Him. And that's what we trust in. We put our faith in God and we walk with Him even when the way is hard. Thirdly, We need to be in fellowship with other believers. And we see that in verse 13. He said, But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin is deceitful. Sin can look attractive. It can look appealing. It can draw people in. But it stings and it kills in the end. 
And he's saying, don't be drawn in by that. Instead, encourage one another daily. We need one another. It is possible to be blind to our own sin and to just not recognize and have these areas of our life where we need somebody else to point it out to us. Did you realize when you said that? Or did you know that? And they are honest with you and they confront you, but in a loving way. And they, we need to hear that. Just like David, when he chose to be blind to his sin, did not admit his adultery with Bathsheba, And it took a person like Nathan to come to him and to point that out. Sometimes we can be discouraged. We can want to run away and quit. Life is hard. Things can be tough. And there are times when we can just be discouraged and lose heart. And we need other believers to come alongside of us. I think of John Mark who deserted Paul on his missionary journey. He tanked. I mean, he, he left Paul at a time that was very significant, and Paul was mad about that. In fact, that's what one of those controversies are in the book of Acts, when Paul and Barnabas have this disagreement over, should we take John Mark with us again? But Mark needed a Barnabas to come alongside of him and to lift him up and to encourage him. And John Mark would be restored in his relationship with God, in his relationship with Paul, and he would be the Mark who writes the second gospel. Sometimes we need that. When we are hurting, we need a brother or sister who will come alongside of us and lift us up and be there for us. For the writer of Hebrews, one of the keys to remaining faithful is to be connected to a healthy church. We are a body of believers and we need one another. When one member is hurting, we all hurt. When one is grieving, we all grieve. And when one rejoices, we rejoice with them in what God is doing, but we need one another. Many of you know the name Larry Crabb. He's a well-known Christian counselor and author. And Dr. Crabb shares this story. When he was a young man, There was an incident in his church that could have been devastating in his life. Here's what happened. Small church, and at their communion services, they would often ask one of the young men to pray, just like we ask our elders to pray. And so on this particular Sunday, he was asked to pray before communion. And feeling the pressure of expectation, the young crab who had a problem with stuttering stood up to pray. And in a terribly confused prayer, he recalls thanking the Father for hanging on the cross and praising Christ for triumphantly bringing the Spirit from the grave. I mean, he just just was flustered and he got it wrong as he was so nervous thinking about standing in front of these people in church that he knew. And when he was finished, he vowed he would never again speak or pray out loud in front of a group. You know, and he left you know, going out <laughs> to the back of the church, he was hoping like nobody would see him, nobody would talk to him. He kind of braced himself for the anticipated correction. He thought maybe one of the elders would pull him aside and kind of correct his theology there. But instead what happened was there was a man named Jim Dunbar who caught him. 
And he pulled him aside and he said, Larry, there's one thing I want you to know. Whatever you do for the Lord, I'm behind you 1,000%. And Larry Crabb, in his book, said, Even as I write these words, my eyes fill with tears. I have yet to tell that story to an audience without at least mildly choking up. Those words were life words. They had power and they reached deep into my being. You know, what a good example that is of times when we need someone to come alongside of us and to speak words of grace, words of healing, words that affirm and lift us up because we all struggle and we're all going to mess up. I understand what he's talking about. I remember, you know, as a young pastor, there were times when I didn't want to go to the back of the church and see anybody because I felt like that was a really bad sermon. And I just, uh, you know, it's, there are times when you kind of wish there's a trap door up here and you could just drop out of sight and be gone and it was done, you know. And, and I know what that's like because we're all trying to grow and do the best that we can. And sometimes you may be serving in an area of ministry where you feel like you just blew it. And you know what's amazing to me, though, is that often it's on those kind of situations that God does something extraordinary that you didn't even know, and he blessed somebody or somebody says some encouraging word to you, and God works. We need one another in the body of Christ. We need people who will speak the truth and love when we go astray, and we need people who will encourage us to grow and become the person God made us to be. And then fourth, we need to be faithful. We need to be faithful. In verse 14, he writes, We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And so here, here he is calling attention to this fact that we need to hold on to Christ. We have come to share in him if we hold firmly till the end. And that word there, to hold firmly till the end, means to be resolved. I mean, set your heart on this. Be determined that you are going to hold on to Christ. You see, a genuine faith is durable. It perseveres through trials. It doesn't matter if circumstances are hard difficult, not what we had planned, I'm going to hold on to Jesus because he's holding on to me. What the scripture is saying here is that point A is true, we have come to share in Christ. If point B is true, we hold firmly to the end. Let me explain that or give you some other examples because we find that same thought in other places in scripture. For example, Paul writes in Romans 8, 9, that you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So he's saying, you know, in our struggle with sin or attitudes or things like that, if we've really come to know Christ, we're not controlled by the sinful nature any longer. We can live differently. We can change, but only if the Spirit of Christ is in us. And if we don't have the Spirit of Christ, we don't belong to him. 
He tells us in Colossians 1, 22 and 23, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight if you continue in your faith, established and firm and not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. In other words, you can know that you have been reconciled to God, that you have been changed if you persevere and continue to hold on to him so that our growth in Christ is one of the evidence that we really have been born again. Or another example that's very clear and straightforward is 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. We know that Jesus lives in us if we come to obey him and we find that his commands are not burdensome. They're a joy. They're what we really want to do. And even though we may struggle at times with sin or we may fall, our heart is set on following Christ. Our joy is to do what he has asked us to do. And we are becoming more and more like Jesus who said, my will is to do the will of him who sent me. That's where we should be. That's where a believer's heart is at. And so if someone says that I know Christ but they have no desire to go to church. They have no desire for fellowship with other believers. They have no desire to read the Bible or pray, and they're just kind of going through the motions. There's no life there. That's the warning. These are real warnings that need to be heard. You see, it's not right for us to give false assurance and to say to someone, well, it doesn't matter how you live. If you were baptized... Or if you prayed this prayer, or if you did this once, and you know that covers you forever. No, that's not what the scripture is saying here. There is a warning that the way that we can know that we've really been born again and come to know Christ is shown in our obedience, in the way that we live, in our joy and our delight in following Jesus Christ. The proof of our faith is seen in how we live. So be faithful and hold on to Jesus. What do people see when they look at our life? Do they see the fruit of the Spirit? Do they see a life that's been changed by Christ and they see His joy or His love or His faithfulness? Do they see acts of kindness? Do they see generosity? Do they see a person who loves God's Word and loves God's people? a person who prays and is trusting God? Do they see Jesus in us? Hold on to Jesus because He's holding on to you. When I think about that picture of holding on to Jesus and I think about both sides here, the way I picture it is like this. You know, when, when we were parents and our kids were toddlers, uh, walking with toddlers in the winter can be an adventure, you know, anytime, but especially in winter. If there's snow on the parking lot or there's some slippery spots where it's a little bit icy, what do you do if you have a toddler? You either carry them or if they're walking with you, you're holding their hand and you're wanting them to hold on to you. And you walk across that parking lot and their feet may slip and slide and they may be going different directions, but as long as they're holding on to you and you're holding on to them, they're okay. They're going to make it safely into the house or into the car, whichever direction you're going. 
And I think about that with Jesus. We are to hold on to him, but the scripture also tells us that he is holding on to us and that no one can snatch us out of his hand, that he loves us, he's watching over us, he is with us. So friends, if we're going to be faithful and walk with God all our life, then we need to do these things. We need to fix our thoughts on Jesus and walk in fellowship with him. It's 1 John 1. We're to walk in the light just as he is in the light. When we sin, we confess it, we get back in a relationship with him. And we set our desire, our goal, on growing and becoming more and more like him. And secondly, we need to choose to obey him even when the way is hard and we don't know what God may be doing in our life or in our circumstances. And things like that are going to come. There'll be challenges, there'll be obstacles, but we need to choose to obey and continue to trust him. And thirdly, we need to be connected to a healthy church. We come to church for teaching and encouragement. We come together to meet because we need the fellowship and we need the prayer and support that comes from one another. And we come together to worship and have opportunities where we can work together and serve Christ as brothers and sisters in the body. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us today to take to heart this warning to make sure that we are right with you And if there is any doubt about that at all in a person's relationship with you, today is the day to make things right. To say to Jesus, would you forgive me? Would you change my heart and remove this heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh that is sensitive and tender toward you? Jesus, I want to know you. I want to walk with you in obedience and in fellowship. And you will do that. And I pray for all of us that we would guard our heart, that we would not let bitterness find any root or unforgiveness or past hurts or secret sins or any of those things hinder our fellowship with you, but that we would confess it, be right with you, and go on and grow and become the person, the man or woman you intended us to be. Father, thank you that you are loving, you are faithful, And you will continue to work in us until the day you bring us home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.